greetings and welcome to episode 29 of Beyond Huaxia. I'm your host, Justin Jacobs. Today, we got a big topic, a biggie. Japan versus China. Sounds like two combatants getting ready to step into the ring, and that's exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be a brutal confrontation that's going to occur for pretty much the first 50 years of the 20th century. And in other spheres, such as economic, it will go on far longer. You might even say today, Japan versus China. Um, Japan, in the guise of working under a U.S.-supported umbrella, um, is still the central conflict that we see in East Asia today. Now, brief disclaimer before we get started, we will deal with Japan in much more detail Later on down the road in this podcast, I have 15, 20 episodes that are eventually going to be devoted entirely to the rise, the maintenance, the construction, and then the fall of the Japanese Empire. Okay? Today, what we're doing is we're just trying to understand how Japan is relevant for modern Chinese history. Sort of like when we talked about Korea. We didn't really talk about Korea for Korea's sake. We talked about Korea as it appeared in the Chinese world order, okay? The Huaxia world order. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to be talking about Japan as it existed in the Huaxia world order, historically in the pre-modern age, and then how it managed to break out of that order and really create a new ideological order all of its own. Okay, it was sort of a hybrid of Japanese and Western ideas um, that for a brief period of time was able to subjugate and impose its will upon China. All right, until finally destroyed in World War II and laid low. Okay, Um, this is what we're going to be talking about today. Now, we have to establish some major big concepts, as we always do, and unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on your perspective, what you're in here for, uh, we need to go way back. All right, let's talk about the biggest concepts possible. Let's talk about geography. Cast your mind way back. I always like to talk about with every single topic, well, if it's relevant, of course, most of them are if you uh, take it to its ultimate source, however, uh, geography, exposed versus protected zones. When we approach the Japanese island, we need to understand first, uh, is this an exposed zone or is it a protected zone and what are the implications of that for politics? Okay, remember, On the East Asian mainland, if you are an exposed zone, that means you are exposed to what? You are exposed to nomads on horseback, who are the most fearsome military machine in the pre-industrial era. Okay? Um, If you are a protected zone, however, that means you're not exposed to those fearsome nomadic cavalry armies. And when you're not exposed... To mobile warriors on horseback who can conquer over great distances, what that means is that your rulers, the people who are in power, are not going to come from distant lands. Okay, in the history of China, in the history of India, in the history of much of the Middle East, the people who were in charge, the people who were rulers, the sultans, the emperors, the whatnot, um, very often they were culturally alien peoples over their subjects because they came from really far away to conquer that land, okay? And this obviously has a lot of, you know, creates some problems for present-day nationalist reimaginings of history when they look back and they say, what the hell are all these Mongols doing in China? <laughs> okay, what are these Central Asians doing in India? What are the Turks doing all the way over in the Middle East? As the Shah 
as the Sultan, as the Emperor? Well, you know why, because you've been paying attention in this podcast. Okay? Japan, however, it should be very obvious, is a protected zone. Look at a map. Okay? You have this, this collection of islands uh, off into the, in, in, in the northeastern uh, part of Asia with uh, you know, 10,000 10, miles of water to the east. Um, to the west, if you look on a map, you'll notice Japan is actually also fairly far north. Most of the Japanese islands are further north than even Korea. Okay, uh, if you think it's sort of like latitude-wise, uh, it's even north of China. I'm always shocked when I look at what the flight time is going to be from Tokyo to Beijing, for instance, and I forget exactly what it is, but it's like three and a half or four hours, maybe even four. I'm always shocked. Wow, four hours? Going 550 miles an hour in the air, it still takes that long to go from Tokyo to Beijing. Yeah, look it up. It's a, it's a long flight. Okay, Japan's way the hell out there. All right, there's, there's four main islands that are considered to be sort of, you know, the core islands of Japan. Honshu being the main island. That's where you're going to find Tokyo and where you're going to find Kyoto. Um, you have a smaller island to sort of the southwest of that known as Shikoku. Um, in historical terms, not a lot really, it doesn't really become all that prominent. But the other island, Kyushu, uh, that's a fairly sizable island um, that Korea points into. The Korean peninsula sort of ends and then you cross a little bit of water and you get to Kyushu. Okay, so at its southernmost point, the Japanese islands finally bump up uh, close to Korea. Okay, uh, but as you go through most of the major islands, Honshu, and then even Hokkaido, all the way up to the north, that's the furthest most island, um, you're pretty far away from all the action and all the wealth of the East Asian continental heartland. Okay, remember when the Mongols, the Mongols, Genghis Khan's descendants, they actually tried to invade Japan. Bad idea. All right, you probably heard of the, the miracle kamikaze winds that swept in, whether that's myth or legend or just bad weather, whatever it is. Uh, you really can't invade the Japanese islands from the mainland. It's extremely difficult. Now, the implications of all this is that Japan is going to be ruled by people who grow up on the Japanese islands. You may have heard this story about how, oh, wow, you know, the Japanese nobility, the emperors of Japan, are the longest, homogenous, unbroken line of emperors anywhere in the world. And that's basically true. If you look at the lineage in detail, you'll notice some breaks here and there. Uh, it's not quite as neat as, as, as it is often portrayed to be. But nevertheless, the larger point is, is that, yeah, you don't actually have an inf uh, a regular infusion of outside blood, let's put it that way, into the rulers of the Japanese islands because it's a protected zone. Okay, it's difficult to invade in the pre-modern era. Heck, it's difficult to invade today when the United States was trying to think about whether or not they were going to invade the Japanese islands at the end of World War II. It gave them a huge headache trying to think how difficult that was going to be. All right, so it's the ultimate protected zone. Okay, the nobility is going to be indigenous. All right, doesn't mean they identify with their subjects as if we're all culturally the same. No, no, no. They denigrated and looked down upon their lower class subjects, just like everyone else, uh, just like elites everywhere else in the world did as well. No exceptions there. 
Uh, but nevertheless, if you want to think in biological terms, genetic terms, what have you, uh, the rulers of Japan grew up. They were born and bred on the Japanese islands, which is more than you can say for many other parts of the world, especially parts of the world that we classify as exposed zones. Now, when do you get your infusion of Huaxia culture from the mainland? All right, this is, this is interesting to, to note the comparisons with Korea. Okay, uh, the infusion of Huaxia architecture, literature, script, Chinese characters, all right, philosophy, religion, all these sorts of things. That occurs during the Tang Dynasty, roughly 600 to 900 AD. Okay, remember when it was for Korea? It was during the Han Dynasty, all right, around the turn of the first millennium, somewhere around there. That's when you got your first armies from the Han Dynasty that were marching into the Korean Peninsula, uh, winning some military uh, battles, and then setting up military garrisons. And we have records and archaeological evidence that they were there. We don't know a whole lot beyond that, uh, but we do know they were there temporarily. Okay. Um, so Korea gets its infusion of Huaxia civilization uh, about, oh, 600 years prior to Japan. Okay, 600 years prior to Japan. Both of them receive a huge infusion of Huaxia culture from the mainland, but at different times, and they do different things with it. Okay, now, you, now, you, now it's obvious from the outset that both of them have uh, their origin stories lay with China. Okay, because their names came from China. Remember in the case of Korea... The Choson Dynasty, which rules for the last 600 years in Korea until the monarchy is finally abolished and they're incorporated into the Japanese Empire in 1910. The Choson Dynasty, it was that is the Korean pronunciation of a Chinese phrase, Chaoxian, which was conferred upon the emperor of the Choson Dynasty or the king of the Choson Dynasty uh, by Zhu Yanzhang, the founder of the Ming Dynasty. All right, it's literally a Chinese name that was conferred upon them. Here is your name. This is what you're going to be called. <laughs> and then they just pronounced it in Korean. Chaoxian became Choson. Japan's kind of similar, although not so directly, you know, coerced into adopting their name. But nonetheless, the name of Japan derives from its physical, its geographical orientation with regard to China or Huaxia civilization. In Japanese, you pronounce Japan as Nihon or Nippon, depending on the grammatical context around it. Yeah, that's a good reminder, again, of how difficult the Japanese language is and how it, along with Korean, are not related to Chinese, okay? They borrow a lot of individual nouns and words, and they borrow the script, uh, but the actual language itself um, has zero relation to Chinese, as much relation to Chinese as English has to Chinese, okay? Um... Now, the name of Japan, though, this Nihon or Nippon, or in Chinese, Ruben, uh, literally means sun root, the root of the sun, where the sun comes from. Okay, where does the sun come from? The sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Remember that little nursery school rhyme, sets in the west. If you are in China, then the sun rises where you've heard about there being islands that some people come from who have started to adopt Huaxia culture. Therefore, that's the land that is the origin of the sun. Okay? It's entirely derived 
from orientation with regard to East Asian continental mainland. Now, it's not like conferred upon the Japanese, uh, but it is internalized by them when they start importing Chinese script and Chinese literature. They find that their land is described as Nihon, as the origin of the sun, and they internalize that name for themselves as well. Now, Unlike Korea, however, you're going to see a lot more autonomy in Japan vis-a-vis China. Okay? Belligerent autonomy. Korea, even though it receives its infusion of Hua culture much earlier, will take much longer before they start to say things like, hey, we should maybe diverge and tweak our inheritance from China a little bit. We think maybe they're losing the way when these barbarians from the north conquer uh, the East Asian mainland and we need to separate ourselves from them a little bit. All right. That doesn't occur until very, very late. Okay, Korea will not actually start altering the classical Chinese script until the 15th century. That's when they create their own native script, Hangul. And then even then, it's just used alongside classical Chinese. All right. And there's a big debate, actually. Are, are we being disrespectful towards China by adopting our own script? Oh, no. What's China going to think? We're not using Chinese characters exclusively anymore. Are they going to think we're uncivilized? Oh, no. They got a, they got a big... You know, image problem. A lot of anxiety. They're really afraid of what the bully on the playground is going to think of them. (laughs) All right? Japan's not afraid. Japan is far enough away that even though they are going to be a recipient of Chinese civilization, Chinese culture, they will very quickly say, to hell with any sort of models, to hell with what the Tang Dynasty Emperor thinks of us and what we do. We're going to adapt this stuff for our own personal needs. And Japan, Japanese, the Japanese version of Hua culture will diverge more significantly and more quickly than it will diverge on Korea. Okay? Japan's going to, you know, it receives its infusion in like the 6th, 7th century. This is the Heian period, named after the capital, the Heian uh, 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 capital. All right? Present-day Kyoto, which is going to be the imperial capital as well. Okay? That first form of Chinese architecture, script, and everything, 6th, 7th century. Just 100 years later, by the 8th century, you've already got the development of new alphabetic scripts known as hiragana and katakana in Japanese. Take a look at Japanese, those things that aren't Chinese characters. They're more uh, squiggly and cursive. All right? Not, not as many strokes as the really complex Chinese characters. That's hiragana and katakana, two alphabetic systems that are designed to help express the Japanese grammatical structure and all the other things that it has that don't exist in Chinese. All right? They've already started to develop this just 100 years after receiving classical Chinese script. Okay? They have no compunction about saying, you know, we got to adhere very closely to Chinese models. We're going to adapt this sucker immediately. All right? Of course... Kanji, Chinese characters, will be most prestigious, and yes, classical Chinese will be the language of many things for a long time to come. But when you compare it with Korea, you're going to see a lot more deviation, a lot more use of natively adapted scripts. Okay, that you're not going to see in Korea. In fact, the Japanese, not only will they create new alphabetic scripts, they'll also alter many of the Chinese characters that they receive. To the point that you'll have enough characters that have been simplified, 
you know, changed over the centuries in Japan, that when the Chinese communist leadership in the 1950s actually says, hey, we need to simplify the Chinese characters, and they go around looking for models of how to simplify Chinese characters, they look to the Japanese and they say, we know the Japanese have already simplified a lot of our characters pretty well. There's a good logic to it. Let's just import some of their simplifications of the Chinese script. That'll be much easier than trying to come up with some from scratch. And the reason they can do that is because the Japanese decided very early on that they were going to start altering and screwing around with Chinese characters to, you know, suit their needs better. And they changed it so much that it was already sort of like they simplified the Chinese script before the Chinese decided to simplify the Chinese script in some ways. Okay, Mahayana Buddhism, that's going to be the form of Buddhism that gets exported to Japan because that's the form of Buddhism that is preeminent in China. Okay, but everywhere Mahayana Buddhism goes, it then mixes and merges with local religious gods and pre-existing beliefs. Okay, in China, Buddhism had to be interpreted and share space with Taoism, both philosophical Taoism and sort of, you know, uh, what we might think of as crude, popular religious Taoism, the voodoo and the potions and all that kind of crap. All right. Um, in Tibet, you get Buddhism merging with the, you know, the local uh, Tibetan gods and animist beliefs to create a very unique form of Buddhism that we even say, hey, it's so different, we're going to call it Tibetan Buddhism now. In Japan, Mahayana Buddhism is going to share space with what becomes known as Shinto. The Chinese characters that are used to express Shinto is Shandao, way of the gods. Okay, that has all their unique gods, gods known as Kami. Just like everywhere it goes, Tibet, you have your own unique gods, and in Japan, you have your own unique gods, and they're going to be uh, enveloped within new Buddhist beliefs that are not found anywhere else in the Buddhist world. This is called religious syncretism, okay? And it's going to occur in Japan just like it occurs everywhere else in Asia. In Japan, oftentimes, you'll see uh, Shinto and Buddhist clergy, the priests and whatnot, in the same temple, sharing the exact same space. In fact, in the 19th century, when they're trying to create a new identity for the modern Japanese state, uh, they actually say, you know what? Shintoism and Buddhism, we often can't even distinguish which one is which. Is this a Shinto temple or a Buddhist temple? Uh, it's not clear because they're so intermixed together. And they had to make a special effort to try to pull them apart from each other and say, no, this is Shinto. This is Buddhism. Because they want to clearly delineate it and say, this is native, this is foreign. And we, and we, we, we now want to take greater pride in the native aspect of our cultural heritage. And so Shinto became much clearer and more express, uh, explicitly delineated as being different from Buddhism. They wanted to separate the two. Okay. Um, all right. Now, so we've got religion, we've got the cultural syncretism, we have the earlier divergence of Japanese cultural adaptations from the Chinese model than we see in Korea. Now let's talk about politics. Politics, politics, politics. Whenever I talk about politics, I always like to note that the thousand years or so of Japanese history from the Heian state, 600 AD or so, until the founding of the Tokugawa shogunate in 1600, about a thousand year period, it's basically a political reenactment of what we saw in China from the Zhou dynasty until the end of the Warring States and the creation of the Qin Empire. All right. Remember back, maybe you didn't listen to those episodes, but way back when we were talking about how the Zhou state uh, created many of the uh, foundational models for a new bureaucratic state in East Asia. One of the first ones I've ever seen. 
Okay, new ideologies, the mandate of heaven, new narratives about history, new bureaucratic models, new ideas about the son of heaven, these sorts of things. Okay, um, and because these were so momentous and hadn't been done before, even after the Zhou dynasty loses most of its power, only 150 years or 200 years after its establishment, uh, by 750 BC, the Zhou dynasty is pretty impotent. No one sees fit to depose the last Joe Emperor for another 500 years. Because if you do, then you have to replace them with something new. And no one wants to have to reinvent the wheel. That's a lot of work. It's really risky. You take down the Joe Emperor who represents the founding of your civilizational model. Then you're opening yourself up to attack from your enemies who are looking for a pretext to take you down. So remember what we saw in the case of the Zhou dynasty, which lasts for a ridiculous 800 years or so, even though it only has real power for like 150 of those years, we saw after those first 150 years, we see a whole bunch of local hegemons, known as Ba in Chinese, hegemons, who would fight for the right to be the quote-unquote protector of the Zhou king. And then I'm going to, you know, I'm going to protect him from all of his hostile, uh, insubordinate subjects. And what they actually do is rule in his name. Okay, and say, I don't want to invent the wheel, that's too risky. I'm just going to prop him up as a puppet and rule in his name as his protector. Yeah, right, okay. That's what we're going to see in Japan. The early emperors in Japan get about 150, 200 years of real power, the Heian state. And then they start to decline. And they don't really have much real power. And you have regional warlords who, 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 who sprout up all over the main islands Back then, there's no Hokkaido, so we're talking about three main islands. Honshu, where you have Kyoto and, and, and Edo, which was the pre-1868 name for Tokyo. Um, Kyushu and Shikoku. And you're going to have all these warlords fighting with one another to be the protector. The only difference is that instead of a Ba, a hegemon, they're called a shogun. A shogun. The shogun's going to be the one who fights to rule in the name of the emperor, uh, 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 the Japanese emperor, as his king. That's the other thing. The Japanese are very prickly about the Chinese tribute system. They say, no, 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 we run our own tribute system in which we have barbarians in northeastern Asia and from the Ryukyu Islands. That's the island chain just to the south of Japan uh, that extends from Kyushu Island all the way to Taiwan, 600 miles or so of an archipelago, uh, today known as Okinawa. All right, named after the largest island about halfway from Kyushu to Taiwan. And they had them come and give tribute to the Japanese emperor. We have our own tribute system. And when the Chinese emperors would hear about this, they'd be enraged. How dare the Japanese say they're not going to pay tribute to us? And we should go pay tribute to them. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to invade the Japanese islands? Hell no, you're not. So they had to live with it. Sometimes the Japanese would send envoys and they'd have some tribute or whatnot. But by and large, most of the time, they said, to hell with you. We don't owe you anything. And they would not send tribute. Okay, now, the Shogun era. A Shogun is literally the Japanese pronunciation of the Chinese characters for Jiang Jun, a general, a military general. Okay, the Shogun era lasts from about 1200 to 1867 AD. This is the period in which you have various people fighting for the right to be called Shogun, to get the title of Shogun and receive or wrangle the emperor's blessing as his protector against all these ungrateful subjects uh, who are no longer listening to him. 
All right. And they had a longer title for the Shogun. And the longer title, the longer formal title for this general was the general who conquers barbarians. All right. He brings peace to the land and does the emperor's will. And from the, let, let, let's divide up this Shogunate era from about 1200 to 600 AD, 400 years or so. Okay. Um, you have about 250 warlords all fighting to become the next Shogun. Very similar to the Warring States era in ancient Chinese history. Well, you know, three digits worth of, of, of states, culturally very similar to one another, linguistically fairly similar to one another. They all look kind of alike, with variations, of course. And they all want to be the Shogun. Now, in the Japanese context, these are known as daimyo. Right? Daimyo literally means a great private landholder. Someone who's able to mobilize and exploit the resources of their population and their jurisdiction. Okay? And the daimyo then try to marshal these resources to defeat other daimyo and become the shogun. Alright. Now, the daimyo are aided in their quest to become the shogun by samurai. All of you, I'm sure, have heard of samurai. Samurai originally meant an attendant. What is the uh, analog to the samurai in the ancient Chinese context, cast your mind back to when I was talking about all those ancient Chinese philosophers, the Shi. Remember that? The Shi. That's the class of people that Confucius and Mozi and Mencius and Xunzi and all them belong to. A downwardly mobile, once upon a time hereditary aristocratic class that has the pretensions of high society but now has to work for a living. And some of them might have had privileges and money and whatnot, but many were on the cusp of becoming commoners, and yet they had education. They had access to the elites, and they just needed to try to make them, you know, this life profitable so I can stay hanging around the elites. And the sure, before they became philosophers and turned to civil pursuits, they were military officers. They were knights. In fact, one of the earliest translations of sure is a knight. Those who go into battle and do one-on-one combat representing their king. And the battle is largely determined by these two guys duking it out. Okay. The samurai also become this hereditary noble class slightly below the top elites who nonetheless have to work for a living. They're often literate and they also have a martial aspect to them as well. And they carry out the orders of the daimyo. They go out and they collect taxes from recalcitrant peasants who haven't paid. It's a dangerous job. You better also be able to know how to use those swords. (laughs) Right? They go out and they engage in one-on-one combat for honor feuds to settle disputes between different domains. Right? This sort of stuff. So samurai were very important military agents of the daimyo. Okay? And they eventually also, as time goes on, will shift their focus from martial pursuits to civil and literary pursuits. And for once you get to the Tokugawa era after 1600 and warfare is not going on, you have one shogun, the samurai are going to find that their skills are are increasingly not in demand. And they too will turn to civil pursuits. But the, 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 the popular legends and stories and image of them as these fearsome warriors... Uh, once upon a time, will live on. Now, how does this early shogunate era end? Well, by the year 1550, the 250 daimyo have shrunk to about three. And by the year 1600, exactly the year 1600, you have one victor, the Tokugawa family.
The Tokugawa era will last for in about 250 years. Okay, from about 1600 until the middle of the 19th century. Strictly speaking, till 1868. Okay, and this is where the analogy with China begins to diverge. The analogy with early, pre-imperial China begins to diverge. Instead of culminating in a unified empire with a centralized government under one heavenly sovereign, the Tokugawa era, even when you have just one shogun and he's defeated all of his rivals and there's no serious claimant to, to the title of shogun and the land is generally at peace for 200 years, the Tokugawa lands will still remain divided between a symbolic emperor and a shogun. They'll never abolish the hegemon, the protector. He'll continue to try to maintain the fiction that it's all temporary. Okay, I'm just a temporary protector. In fact, the government office of the shogun will be known literally as a temporary field office, known as a bakufu, in which the meaning of that of, of the Chinese characters, the kanji used for bakufu, literally means a tent office. I'm just a military commander temporarily setting up a tent to protect the emperor wherever he needs me. Hogwash. You're ruling. You are the de facto emperor. You just don't have the courage to call yourself that yet and truly depose this totally impotent emperor whose ancestors haven't had power for a thousand years. All right, and the shogun sets up his quote-unquote you know, tent office in Edo. That's Tokyo. That's the pre-Tokyo name for Tokyo. Edo. E-D-O. Also on Honshu, the main island. Looks kind of like a hot dog, inverted hot dog a little bit. Um, and Kyoto is more in the southwest of Honshu, and Edo is more in the northeast of Honshu. Okay, um, so the Tokugawa realm is very decentralized. Yes, you've got a shogun, um, and he can defeat any one or any small coalition of the daimyo across the land. Uh, if they were all to you know rise up against him, he'd probably lose. But they can't coordinate uh, their alliances that well, so they don't. There are no laws, regulations, or bureaucracy that are determined all across the Japanese lands. Right? In China, you've had a centralized government, uniform laws, civil service examination system. Some of those things have been going on for thousands of years already. Okay, Nothing of the sort in Japan. The daimyo have several important uh, restrictions, but it's still what Han Feitze, that legalist philosopher, referred to as sort of, you know, this is early feudalism still. All right, the daimyo only have a few restrictions. You can't do this, and you can't do this, and you have to do this. As long as you fulfill these five criteria, however, you can do whatever the hell you want in your domain. Not like a centralized bureaucracy in which they say, your job, you are a cog in a machine. These are the ten things you can do, and that's it. You do anything other than these ten 10 you know, job tasks, and you're going to get fired from your job. No, we're not at that level of centralization at all in Japan. Okay. Uh, the daimyo can't interact with foreign powers on their own. They can't build new fortifications, military fortifications. They can't adjudicate disputes between other daimyo. And they have to support some of the shogun's construction projects, supply them with information for a census. They have to get a per permission to marry. Okay, but only the shogun can mint currency, control imperial highways, and oversee religious institutions. You got to send some hostages to Edo under the shogun's control. So if you rebel against them, he can you know cut off the head of your wife and children that you sent as hostages. Okay, uh, but other than that, there's no direct control of daimyo populations by the shogun. 
The daimyo continue to administer two-thirds of the population of the Japanese islands, control their own staffs, their own bureaucracies, govern their people how they see fit. And the shogun knows he can't penetrate down to the ground level of any of those daimyo outside of his direct control. Okay, this is the situation that is in place when the Westerners discover East Asia. Okay, now the question we have to ask, the question you always have to deal with, why do China and Japan diverge? Why, chi why China, which was so prominent, the only game in town for millennia in East Asia, everyone who wanted to Create a big state, you had to take over the Chinese agricultural heartland and deal with the nomads or be a nomad yourself. Now, Japan, as we all know, is going to assume the mantle of most important East Asian player and be a ferocious, successful one at that. How did this happen? The Chinese really looked down on the Japanese for the longest time. They were referred to as dwarf pirates. Not a very flattering term. These, you know, people on the ocean who harass our shores and ships from time to time uh, refuse to send tribute to us, but they're kind of basically barbarians. They're a watered-down, diluted form of our glorious Huaxia culture. How are things going to change so drastically? Well, there's a couple of reasons, okay? The first reason that we need to understand is that Japan's going to see what happens to China first, okay? China is going to be... China is, is where all the wealth is, okay? China's where all the wealth is, and it's where the biggest state is, the biggest empire in all of East Asia. Heck, all of Asia, okay? The Westerners are, you don't have to be too smart to recognize this fact, to appreciate this fact. And they're going to look at China and Japan, and they're going to say, one land has untold riches and products, and potential customers for things like opium. <laughs> and it's ruled by one emperor who has a centralized, highly disciplined bureaucracy. And when the emperor says, jump, everyone in the empire jumps, at least all of his officials in the Qing Dynasty bureaucracy. Because it's highly centralized. So if we can win a war with the Qing Dynasty and get the emperor to agree to sign a treaty that gives us privileges... Those privileges will be carried out. They will be enforceable throughout the lands of the Qing dynasty, potentially. Maybe not always in practice, but potentially. And as more and more of the Qing dynasty gets opened up, the Qing empire gets opened up through various treaties, and foreigners get more and more privileges throughout all the domains of this massive wealthy empire, they start realizing we're getting a lot more out of China for a lot less effort than we could ever get from Japan. The Japanese islands are no longer isolated because with European ships you can get there quite easily. Okay? But they are resource poor. And one reason why Japan's going to embark on an empire on China's ground is because they're not going to have a lot of the resources that you need to become a modern industrial power. It's very mountainous. Okay? Um... Japan doesn't have a whole lot to offer to the Westerners. And not only that, they're decentralized. You go and you win a war against the armies of the Shogun. Okay? And he says, okay, okay, okay. Here you go. Here's a treaty in which you're going to have these privileges. 
and I allow you to do this, have these tariffs, blah, blah, blah. You take that piece of paper, and then you sail to one of the other Japanese islands. You go to the island of Kyushu, and you, you know, talk to the daimyo of Satsuma, a very powerful daimyo. And you say, here, I got a piece of paper from the shogun that says I'm allowed to do this, that, and the other in your domain and make a big obscene profit and then leave. You know what the daimyo of Satsuma is going to do? He's going to cut your head off. He's going to kill your agents and he's going to say, sorry, that's what the shogun told you you could do. I didn't say you could do that. And this is my land. And the shogun doesn't have the power to enforce his writ, his instructions in all of the daimyo. Okay, so Japan... There's less there in the first place that attracts the Westerners, okay? And then, to even get at that paltry amount of resource, you have to fight, as you always do. But then when you win a battle, you don't even get the privilege of enforcing the spoils of your treaty, of your negotiations, throughout the land. In other words, it's a major pain in the butt to get the right to exploit all of Japan. And then when you do it, finally, what are you exploiting? Not nearly as much as you could have exploited by applying the same amount of military and political resources to China. Where if you win a battle with China, you get potential access to a hundred million times more the wealth than you're going to get in Japan. And you're going to have compliant officials all the way down to the ground level in the provinces who will say, yep, the emperor signed this, I see the emperor's seal, go do what you need to do. Okay? So the Westerners will focus so much more of their attentions on China, and they'll be so less willing to give the Chinese emperor's breathing room. Because what they want is they want a weakened and yet unified China, because the centralized government works in their favor. Here you're going to see an irony of history. China will be punished in the modern world for having come up with many of the bureaucratic administrative innovations like a centralized government, like a civil service examination system, all right? Having a Han Feizi legalist style, well-oiled bureaucracy will not be in China's favor now because the Westerners are going to exploit that to their advantage and they're going to focus much more attention on you than on Japan. Japan will get considerable breathing room to try to enact various Western-style modernization, industrialization reforms that the Westerners will not allow China to do without constantly going to war against them. Okay, so broadly speaking, this is your big difference between China and Japan and how they're going to be able to respond to the West once they decide that they want to respond to the West. Now, Japan is going to be the only victim of the West to successfully push back and create its own empire. Okay? China, I like to say, grudgingly and slowly responded to the West in hopes of keeping the West at arm's length. Japan, however, very quickly realized um, we need to try to emulate the West. We can't re you know, simply respond to them with measures designed to keep them at arm's length. We see what they're doing to China. We know we're not going to win. We need to instead emulate the West with hopes of becoming one of them. And the West was willing to let Japan do this because it didn't have an incentive to not let them do this like it did with China. The major transformation begins in 1868 with what's known as the Meiji Restoration. Daimyo elites from southwestern Japan, the, the domains of Satsuma and Choshu, 
will depose the shogun, the Tokugawa shogun, in a coup, announce the quote-unquote restoration of the Meiji emperor, move him from Kyoto to Edo, which will now be renamed Tokyo, the eastern capital, and declare that the emperorship has been restored. Previously, it was under the control of the shogun's And they're finally going to call out that fiction for what it was and say, we're restoring the emperor to his rightful place as a true emperor with no shogun. It's called the Meiji Restoration. And now, for the next 70 years or so, Japanese empires will once again be powerful. Okay? They haven't been powerful for a long, long time. Suddenly, they are going to have a political role, and some of them will be quite important indeed. As the, the top figure who oversees the deliberations and the policy-making of his top ministers. Okay? And he will have major input. Hirohito will be a a very powerful emperor, probably the most powerful emperor in Japanese history since the Heian period a thousand years earlier. Okay? And then after 1868, modernization begins immediately. Okay? Telegraph lines, Western-style schools, roads, factories... And how are we going to get raw materials to run these factories, to input into these factories, to create new products? How are we going to get the, the new types of steel and you know, uh, wire and everything necessary for telegraph lines, for modern militaries? We need to embark on imperial expansion to get more fertile ground with greater industrial resources that the, that the three main Japanese islands don't have. So in 1868, they formally designate uh, Hokkaido formerly known as Azo, the land of barbarians. They rename it Hokkaido, literally the Northern Sea Circuit. Place it under the colonization office and now actively begin to send Japanese settlers there to farm it and to displace the native Ainu population, which I'll have a whole episode on that later on as well. Okay, so now you have four major islands in the Japanese hemisphere. Okay, 1872, uh, 1872 just three years after they incorporate Hokkaido. The Ryukyu Island Chain is claimed formally by Japan. The Ryukyu Island Chain to the south, 70 islands, including the largest one of Okinawa, all the way down to Taiwan. Okay? They claim it as our sphere of interest. This is ours, not China's. China says, whatever, we still claim the Ryukyu Islands. This all comes to a head in 1874, just two years later, when 54 Ryukyuan sailors uh, are shipwrecked on the island of Taiwan. Taiwan at that point is a loose dependency of the Qing dynasty. It's not a province. They have it. They don't really want it, but they have it. And they're responsible for controlling it. There's some Chinese settlers on there from Fujian province as well who are cultivating the western part of the island. All right, in 1874, 54 Ryukyuan settlers are shipwrecked there, and they are massacred by the Taiwanese aborigines, not Chinese people who have been there for probably over a thousand years already, the same cultural and ethnic stock that eventually populates all of the, of the Pacific Islands. Those are the Taiwanese Aborigines as well. And Japan comes up to the Qing Dynasty and they say, hey, 54 of our subjects, Ryukians, the Ryukians might beg to differ whether or not they were truly Japanese subjects, but unfortunately, they all lost their heads to the Taiwanese Aborigine headhunters, which was a, a, a practice that was still going on in Taiwan then. And they say, we want reparations. Taiwan's yours, isn't it? You claim Taiwan. This happened on your territory. Give us money. Give us money for all the men that died that are our, that are our subjects. And the Qing dynasty says, oh, no, 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 no. It doesn't work like that. We only claim jurisdiction over the western half of Taiwan, those lowlands that are suitable for, for agriculture, 
for rice agriculture. The central part of Taiwan, you know, which is mostly mountainous, that's where the Aborigines live, and then the eastern coast, which is also very mountainous and has mostly Aboriginal populations that have not been settled by Chinese settlers from Fujian, say, that's not ours. We don't claim sovereignty over the entire island, just where we have tax-paying subjects on the western part of the island. This shipwreck occurred in an area that we don't control. So Japan's, Japan gets the hint, and they say, well, wait a second here. This is wonderful. Uh, the Qing is actually giving us a pretext to claim Taiwan for us. And they say, fine, you're not going to pay reparations for something that happened on this part of Taiwan? Then that must mean you don't claim all of Taiwan. And so they sent their own retribution force, their own revenge ship down to Taiwan, disembarked on the southeastern coast of Taiwan, where the Ryukyuans had been shipwrecked and massacred, and chased around some Aborigine tribes for a while, killing some of them as retribution. The Qing dynasty sees this and goes, oh shit, we didn't realize that that's what they would do. And now they're getting a claim for Taiwan. And so they begin to discuss, well, we need to turn Taiwan into a province. We need to turn Taiwan into a province and claim the entire island. And so they will. I think it's 1885, 10 years later, that the Qing dynasty will formally incorporate Taiwan um, into the Qing dynasty as a province. And it's only going to be a province for 10 years because the Japanese remember how useful Taiwan was and how nice it was to be able to send their military ships to Taiwan and disembark there as if it was Japanese territory. And as we're going to see, that's one of the first things they're going to get when they go to war with China. All right, so prior to the 1890s, Japan has expanded. They've, they have restored the emperor. You're past the shogun era now. You are modernizing at breakneck speed on an explicit Western model. The Westerners are giving you breathing room to do this. You've incorporated formally Hokkaido in the north. You have four main islands now. And you have also made uh, overtures to try and formally claim all of those 70 islands uh, of the Ryukyuan archipelago. And you've even made forays onto Taiwan, which is right after the last southern island of the Ryukyuan ar archipelago. Uh, you bump into Taiwan. Okay, but they didn't quite get Taiwan. Now, Japan isn't calling itself an empire yet. They don't really consider Okinawa or Hokkaido to be indicative of a real empire. Why? Because they weren't really conquered after a military battle. It was a little more gradual. Even though we have specific dates for when Ryukyu and, Okina and o o Okinawa were sort of formally incorporated into Japan, um, there are already sort of, you know... Uh, low-level settlers and immigrants and exchange that have been going on for a long time, many centuries already. And so the Japanese, you know, could fool themselves into thinking, we already have some sort of a claim on these lands, and now we've just sort of upped our ante a little bit and are doing something more formal. Uh, but they didn't really see themselves as an empire yet. In Japanese, dai nihon teikoku. In Japanese, Daribandiguo, all right, literally an empire that has lands that are culturally radically different, and we acquired these by righteous conquest. That will change in 1895, and this is usually where people date the beginning of the Japanese empire. In 1894, Japan and the Qing will go to war over who has the most, who has the right to station their troops and have the most influence in Korea. Remember, if you cast your mind back to the Korea episode, it was in this sort of state of unclear limbo who really uh, had sovereignty in there. And that's the way the Koreans liked it. That's how they kept all the big neighbors on all sides sort of at arm's length, is they paid tribute to everyone, okay, while secretly saying, we're the best, we're the most superior, and everyone else is barbarians. 
but officially paying tribute to everyone who could potentially bully them around. The Qing Dynasty thinks that it has preeminent control in Korea. The Japanese say Korea points at Kyushu Island like a dagger aimed at our heart. If we're going to expand beyond the islands, beyond Hokkaido, which um, isn't that rich in resources, and beyond the Ryukyuan archipelago, which is you know also kind of small potatoes, really, when you think about it, uh, we need to get to the mainland. How do you get to the mainland? Through Korea. Korea is the bridge to the East Asian mainland, historically as well. I mean, that's where Chinese culture, Huaxia civilization, came to Japan was through Korea. In fact, in the early Heian period, we know that I believe it was uh, one-third of all the surnames of the early Heian elites who ruled Japan were derived, obviously, from Korean surnames. Okay, uh, That's where those elites came from. The people who brought J Chinese culture to Japan uh, were Korean, linguistically Koreans. All right? Okay, now, in 1894, war breaks out. This first Sino-Japanese war, because there's going to be a second one later on. We know it as World War II. They know it as the first Sino-Japanese war and the second Sino-Japanese war. It breaks out over Korea. Okay? Japan wins. Shakes the earth. China's shocked. This is what I was talking about before. Before, China never really felt an existential threat. Remember that? All that stuff about envoys to the West and what's going on in India and whatnot. This is interesting. We need to learn about it. Let's change. Uh, the West is important. Uh, but there's no existential threat to us. Let's just pick up their clever inventions. This is when the existential crisis occurs. 1895. Holy shit. We lost to the dwarf pirates who we've denigrated for over a thousand years. Now we know something serious is wrong and we need to change. All right, this is the beginning of a sense of massive alarm among Qing Dynasty elites, okay? And it also marks the beginning, not, not, you know, not uncoincidentally, with the beginning of the Japanese Empire. The beginning of the Japanese Empire marks the beginning of the crisis for the Qing Empire. It's got another major threat arrival right on its doorstep now, and it's a rival that they never even anticipated could become a rival, so what happens in 1895 when the war is over and they sign the Treaty of Shimonoseki? Well, the Chinese are forced to recognize that Korea is quote-unquote independent, all right? So it's not really independent. The Japanese and the Russians still have a lot of influence there, but the Qing Dynasty has to basically concede that they are withdrawing. It's not in our sphere of influence anymore. We won't interfere in Korea anymore. So that's one, one foreign actor kicked out of Korea. Not all of them. Japan's now going to want to kick the Russians out of there as well, but that's a later story. Special economic rights in China, a 350 million yen indemnity. Qing Dynasty has to pay for all of Japan's war expenses. And then initially, initially, the Qing Dynasty also agreed to give them the Liaodong Peninsula. That's this peninsula that sticks out in northeastern China, sticks out into the Bohai Bay, uh, the gulf that you have to go, uh, go through to reach Beijing and Tianjin. There's this little peninsula known as the Liaodong Peninsula, has the incredibly important port town of Dalian, known as Port Arthur in old English de uh, designations. They originally were going to get that too. And then the Russians said, the Russians who had significant influence in northeastern China, in Manchuria, they said, whoa, Nelly, hold back, there's no way you're going to let the Japanese get the Liaodong Peninsula. Strategically, that is way too important, and it strikes way too close to our sphere of interest in the Qing Dynasty in the Northeast. And Russia forces the Qing 
to renege on its promise to hand over the Liaodong Peninsula to the Japanese. This will grate on the Japanese elites for a while, and they will make sure that they get revenge on the Russians. So what you're going to see beginning in 1895, we see the beginning of the process of China basically starting to finance the growth of the Japanese empire through various indemnities and territorial acquisitions. They will be facilitating the industrialization and militarization of Japan at China's expense. A very cruel twist of fate from the Chinese perspective. Okay? And it's just, after this, our story is just one war after another until World War II. In 1900, the Boxer Rebellion breaks out. The Boxer Rebellion. Peasants in Shandong Province, northeastern China, a little bit southeast of Beijing, start attacking foreign missionaries. They kill a few German Catholic missionaries. The Westerners protest. And then suddenly the boxers, uh, peasants who think that they can become uh, immune to bullets if they perform the right rituals and whatnot, they start to march on Beijing and attack foreigners everywhere they see them, saying we've got to drive out these barbarians of China. Cixi, Empress Dowager Cixi of the Qing Dynasty, the effective policymaker, makes a horrible blunder and says, this is the moment we've been waiting for. The Chinese people are rising up. Let's attack the Westerners. And she does. And so the Westerners get together and they say, we're going to form an invasion force that's going to march on Beijing. There's going to be seven of us, and then they invite the Japanese in as well. Eight-nation invasion force, including the Japanese. Crucially, including the Japanese. It's the first time the Japanese will see themselves included as equals among the Western states. Ooh, we get the right to go in and plunder and take booty from China as well. And all eight empires march into Beijing. Lift the siege on the Western embassies, the, the siege on the Western legations. And the Qing court has to flee into the interior to the city of Xi'an and then pay a massive indemnity to all the foreign nations who were involved in that invasion. So Japan gets a huge indemnity. They get the right to station troops in China at the end of the Boxer War in 1901. Okay, and they sent 10,000 troops in to Beijing also. All right. they're, they're, the, they're the honorary Westerners, just like Russia and France and, and, and Great Britain. Same rewards from this battle as every other Western state gets. Now, the results of the Boxer War sets up the next war. Because what happens is that both the Russians and the Japanese, in one of the provisions of the Boxer Treaty, they get the right to station their own troops in parts of northeastern China for ostensible protection. Every single empire will get the right to station a certain amount of troops in areas where they have influence in China for, you know, again, protection, just like the hegemon and the shogun, right? It's all just for protection, don't worry. And they relish this opportunity because now we get to station troops directly on Chinese soil. The only problem is that the, both the Japanese and the Russians are getting permission to station their troops in Manchuria, northeastern China. And so you have Russian troops and Japanese troops staring at each other across the street. That's a bad recipe. So in 1904, Russia does not remove its troops that it stationed as a result of the Boxer War, according to the promised timetable in which they were supposed to remove them. Japan calls foul and says, hey, why do we have to remove our troops if they're not removing their troops? And the Russo-Japanese War breaks out, in which the Japanese and the Russians fight each other in the vicinity of northeastern China, the Pacific Ocean around Korea. Okay? And guess what? Japan wins! This is huge. First time ever a Western force has been seen to be not invincible and beaten 
by a so-called yellow-skinned Asiatic power. The effect is huge when the Russians are defeated by the Japanese in 1905. What do the Japanese get here? Well, now they get to kick the Russians out of Korea. First, you kicked the Qing dynasty out of Korea. Now you're kicking the Russian czars out of Korea. And the Russians have to admit that Korea is part of Japan's sphere of influence. Not only that, Russia also gives them the southern half of Sakhalin Island. Sakhalin Island is that big, long-shaped island that is to the north of Hokkaido. If you just keep taking those islands north, 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 when you get past Hokkaido, then you have this long-shaped island, Sakhalin. And they give the southern half of that to the Japanese, which they will rename Karafuto. Looking ahead, they'll lose that at the end of World War II, and all of Sakhalin will go back to the Russians, along with the Kuril Island chain that's also a little bit north, uh, northeast of uh, Hokkaido, and sort of extends off to the Bering Sea to parts of Alaska. All right. Um, now, the Japanese have not formal control of Korea, but informal control of Korea, essentially, after 1905. Now they have the path is open to expand onto the mainland formally and start laying a, uh, uh, a toehold on Chinese territory, on the Qing dynasty. With Russia sidelined, they make Korea a protectorate. You know, again, it's all about protection, right? In 1905, they forcibly disband the Korean army in 1907 and force their king, Kojong, to abdicate. A Korean peace, peace delegation goes to Europe, they go to The Hague, and they complain, look what Japan's doing. They're taking over us. They're extinguishing our independence. What are you going to do about it? And the Hague refuses to hear their argument. No, we're, we, we, we don't. There's nothing that we're going to do about this. And an editorial in the New York Times said that, quote, the law of survival of the fittest prevails among states as well as among plants and animals. Korea, which they spelled with a C, Korea has been conspicuously unfit in the law of survival. And therefore, it's not going to be a nation that survives independently. So now, it's just a matter of formality. In 1910, they formally incorporate Korea into the Japanese Empire after Ito Hirobumi, the chief Japanese official in Korea, is assassinated. Is assassinated by a disgruntled Korean who wants Japan out of Korea. Okay, so Korea becomes the second major territorial acquisition of the Japanese Empire. They are emigrating their own uh, citizens to Korea. 150,000 Japanese have emigrated to Korea by 1910. They're exploiting their rights in timber, fishing, mining. The Korean economy will be oriented toward exports to Japan for industrial development. The rural sector will be largely ignored. Okay, so areas that were once under the informal control of the Qing Dynasty, the Huaxia cultural sphere, are now formally falling under the Japanese Empire. Now, where is Japan going to get its next acquisitions? Well, not until World War I, actually. Okay, not until World War I. What will happen in World War I? Japan will side with the Allies. And that's a good decision, because when the Allies win, then the losers, namely Germany, lose their colonies. That's what happens when you lose a major war. The victors say, you, 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 we're going to take away all of your colonies. But because Japan joined the side of the Allies, and they were seen as a very important ally, more important than the Chinese, they said, all right, former German colonial holdings in East Asia, and South, uh, uh, Southeast Asia, let's, or really the Pacific, uh, uh, Oceania, that's the word I'm looking for, um, they decided to give them to Japan as thanks for their support, logistical, monetary, you know, that kind of support during World War I. 
This includes uh, Germany's concessions in Shandong, the Shandong Peninsula in northeastern China. I remember Qingdao, the German brewery and whatnot. Uh, they decided to give that to the Japanese when the Chinese thought that they were going to get it. This is a big sticky. This is a very sore point for the Chinese. That actually, when we talk about it later, this is what stimulates the May Fourth protest movement and all kinds of stuff that goes on in the 1920s. Okay, is known as the betrayal at Versailles in 1919 when Shandong was given to the Japanese instead of returned to China. And then they also get, less well-known, is that the Japanese at the end of World War I also get Germany's colonies in the South Pacific. No, uh, a, a collection of 2,000 islands, most quite small, obviously, known as Micronesia. Micronesia. Um, and this militarily will prove very important from a strategic point of view um, in the 1930s, in the 1940s, because they're going to build military bases on a lot of these islands, and as you probably are aware, they're going to have these island-hopping campaigns in World War II, brutal warfare in which the United States is trying to dislodge the Japanese military from these islands. The Japanese get those islands at the end of World War I. Now, the West does say, the Allies do say, you can have these former German islands, but only if you don't build military bases. What do you think the odds are the Japanese are going to listen to that? <laughs> yeah, just try to stop us from build, building military bases. Okay, now the other thing that happens during World War I, in 1915, what the Japanese realize is that the Europeans are sort of disengaged from China. Uh, understandably so, they have to fight their own war. And so this is actually the beginning, World War I is the beginning of what we would say Western imperialism holding back the Qing dynasty to a transition to Japanese imperialism, which is going to take over the chief role of exploiting and oppressing China. Okay, it's going to shift from Western imperialism to largely Japanese-led imperialism in China. And 1915 is your first clue, the first time this is going to happen. Japan will present to the new president of the republic after the 1911 revolution, he will present his, their, 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 they will present their, what is known as the 21 Demands, one of the most humiliating unequal treaties ever imposed on the Chinese, in which they'll basically demand turning large portions of northeastern China into virtual Japanese colonies. Okay, um, this will absolutely destroy the political capital, the political legitimacy of Yuan Shikai, the president in office at the time, and he will die within one year, totally humiliated, and, and China will descend into the warlord era. Okay, Japan takes advantage of World War I and the absence, the vacuum left by the European powers uh, to start asserting itself in China as the preeminent foreign colonial imperialist power. Okay, Russia is also significantly weakened by World War I. As you know, they undergo their own revolution. Russia withdraws from World War I. Obviously, they don't have a lot of resources to be worrying about their former imperial holdings in China, which uh, Japan is also going to start taking over. They're going to be extending their foothold in Korea and in Manchuria, specifically southern Manchuria, where they're going to be coming up from Korea, while the Russians are still sort of in northern Manchuria, which borders eastern Siberia. And then finally, in 1918, when the Russian Revolution is raging and you have whites, the supporters of the old Tsar, and the Reds, the Bolsheviks, supporters of various radical socialist agendas fighting each other all across the former Russian Empire, Japan will try to make its most bold move yet, and they will send 70,000 troops into the Russian uh, Siberia, the Far East, to meddle in the Russian Civil War and try to prop up their preferred side, the Whites, the supporters of the old Tsarist government, over the socialists. 
um, and they lose. This is one of these setbacks that often isn't talked about that much because it doesn't succeed. Uh, but it is an emblem of Japan's desire to displace Russia and even turn parts of Russia into Japanese-influenced colonies. And they, for four years, from 1918-1922, 70,000 Japanese troops are marauding all around Russian Siberia, uh, trying to get a foothold and dislodge the Russians, or at least put up their, their own Russian puppets in power that take orders from Tokyo. Now, Japan is expanding into Manchuria, Korea, parts of trying to get into Siberia, parts of eastern Mongolia and whatnot, uh, because it is the path of least resistance from the strongest European powers. Okay, they know the European powers aren't going to let them expand in other directions. They have to expand uh, at the expense of the weakest European power they identify as Russia um, and the chief East Asian power, the Chinese. All right, evidence that the Westerners are not going to, you know, give them uh, new ground to colonize very easily comes in 1922 at what is known as the Washington Conference, in which it is stipulated by the United States and Great Britain that Japan can only have 60% of the warship tonnage allowed to the U.S. and Britain in the Pacific Ocean. You can't have as many ships out there, warships, as we do. And of course, Japan looks at this and it says, well, this isn't fair. You're effectively blocking our expansion into the Pacific Ocean. At the expense of, of, of us, you know, United States and Britain are always going to be able to rule the seas. And this is a major sore spot that convinces many people in Japan that we're not going to be able to work together with the Western states. Okay, uh, we will need to violently dislodge them and confrontation one day is inevitable. Okay, they will not cede any of their imperial territories willingly. We will eventually have to take them through military force. So during the 1920s, Japan, this is when it starts to go into overdrive, expanding its development and takeover of Manchuria in northeastern China. Okay, this conquest during the 1920s is not really uh, through military conquest, but through industrial development and agricultural settlement. All right, and these activities will take place in association with what is known as the South Manchurian Railway Company, Mantetsu. In Japanese, the South Manchurian Railway Company will play a role analogous to that of, say, the Dutch East India Company in Indonesia, the British East India Company in India. It's going to be this, this commercial entity that runs this informal quasi-state that defends its interests through surgical military strikes uh, wherever necessary. And then when it gets into real big trouble, they can call upon armies from the home government. But they themselves uh, give the illusion, give the fiction to the rest of the world that we're actually a private company. But it's a private company that has very close ties with your government back in the metropole. Okay, And the South Manchurian Railway Company will play this role in Manchuria. They take over many of the railway lines that the Russians used to have. They get the Liaodong Peninsula, they get Dalian, and they have railways that go from Dalian all the way in the south um, up into you know, all of Manchuria. All right, the Russians, there's still some Russian outposts there, uh, but the Japanese are starting to push them out further and further. Okay, 250,000 Japanese at this time in the 1920s are emigrating to Manchuria on lands that had been ceded to the Japanese, uh, ceded to the South Manchurian Railway Company. Okay, Japan has not formally taken over Manchuria at this time. Manchuria is formally under the control of its governor, its Chinese governor, a warlord by the name of Zhang Zolin. 
And the Japan tries to send agents to advise Jung, to support him, to control him, to give him loans. But unfortunately for the Japanese, Jung Zuolin is still his own man, and he pursues his own agenda. And oftentimes the Japanese don't like this as much as they try to control him to do what they want him to do. And finally, in 1928, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government creates a new government in the south at Nanjing. And they force all the warlords who have been, you know, going to war for the past 10 years, since the death of Yuan Shikai in 1916, um, they force them to choose sides. Are you going to pay lip service to being a member of the Nationalist Party and paying loyalty to the new government or not? Zhang Zuolin in Manchuria says, yes, I will go down. And he says, I'm going to get on a train, go to Beijing, meet with nationalist representatives, Chiang Kai-shek's representatives, and work out the terms of uh, a reunified China under a new nationalist government. And the Japanese don't like this. They don't like this. Okay, they want a pliable Zhang Zuolin warlord who will facilitate their tentacles, their economic tentacles, their military tentacles in Manchuria. And when they see Jiang Zuolin about to come do a rapprochement with Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government, they say, this is bad news. A unified, resurgent China is bad news for us. And as Jiang Zuolin is on his train to Beijing, they blow it up with a bomb, and Jiang Zuolin is dead. He is assassinated by the Japanese in 1928. It doesn't help the situation. His son, Jiang Xueliang, takes over as the warlord of Manchuria, and he too decides to form an alliance with the nationalist government in Beijing. And Japanese control in Manchuria is just as precarious as ever. We have the South Manchurian Railway Company. We have settlers and colonists and administrators and railroads. Uh, but it's all along a thin line. You know, a couple miles on each side of the railroad and some of the towns that we set up. But it's very precarious if we don't have preeminent influence with the local officials here. And Chiang Kai-shek says we're getting rid of all imperialists from China. That's bad news for Japan. So this frustration with the lack of change leads to what's known as the Manchurian Incident, September 18, 1931, in which the Japanese military will stage an explosion in the Manchurian town of Shenyang, formerly known as Mukden in the Manchu language. They'll stage an explosion to make it look like Chinese saboteurs had tried to blow up a Japanese military installation gives Japan a pretext to attack. And this results in the complete military takeover of Manchuria by the Kantogun, the Kwantung Army, the Japanese army that was originally sent to protect, <laughs> protect, right? To protect the South Manchurian Railway Company and the settlers and the stores and the towns that it had built up. But it's also just a military force that can do whatever it wants eventually. It still has guns. And they're the ones who staged the, the explosion and then set out on their own without Tokyo's blessing to conquer all of Manchuria at this time period. Tokyo doesn't like it. In fact, they often look at this, the, the, the uh, military, the South Manchurian Railway Company, and they're trying to reel it in. Stop it! You're making things very difficult. We want to have better relations with China. And those people who are forward settlers on the ground, they often want to push things farther and farther. Same thing with Western missionaries. Western missionaries would often go out into the world, and they're very zealous, and they're on the, the frontier, the ground level interactions with local people. They're trying to convert them. They're trying to get influence, and they end up getting into violent scrapes. Sometimes they get killed, and the home government says, God damn it, these missionaries, why are they always causing trouble? We don't want to have to do this, but then ultimately they have a big deliberation, a big discussion. They say, you know what? We can't throw our own nationals under the bus vis-a-vis -vis orientals. 
Okay, we have to support them in the end as much as we don't like to do it. That's what happens here with Tokyo. The foreign office, the foreign ministry will repeatedly say, God damn it, <laughs> the Japanese army in Manchuria. What the hell are you doing? We don't want you to formally take over this clump of land. But it's too late. And it's either uh, approve of what they did after the fact or repudiate your own soldiers and settlers in, uh, you know, abroad. Very few countries are going to do that. They almost always end up siding with their settlers and with their soldiers. If for pride, if nothing else. For face, to preserve face, if nothing else. Westerners, Easterners, everyone does it. And so they set up, the, uh, the uh, Tokyo reluctantly agrees and condones it publicly, privately fuming. Publicly they condone the Kantogun conquest of Manchuria. And they give their blessing in 1932 to the creation of a new state known as Manchukuo. Okay, a whole part of China cut off. Just like the Russians cut off Mongolia. We'll talk about that in a later episode. Uh, Outer Mongolia, which used to be a part of the Qing Empire, that's cut off in 1921. The Japanese will cut off all of Manchuria and try to raise it up as a new independent nation state known as Manchukuo, home of the Manchus, the Manchu country, in which they'll say, we can't just invade other countries without a, without a good reason. That's not allowed anymore. Uh, we have to couch it in the terms of uh, nation states and national determination. We are liberating the poor, oppressed Manchus of the last imperial dynasty from oppressive Chinese rule. Okay, and thus we've set up a new homeland for the Manchus known as Manchukuo. 1932. The League of Nations, the predecessor to the United Nations, will send its own representative into Manchukuo to write up a report. What the hell's going on here? And it'll be a very critical report. That says, this is a puppet state. This is basically a Japanese puppet state, and this is illegal what they've done. Japan's response highlights the impotency of these sort of international organizations that are designed to be world policemen, when in fact they can't really police anything. Japan simply withdraws from the League. They were a member of the League of Nations. They withdraw from it and basically say, you know, flip the middle finger to Western-created frameworks. We're going to have to go our own way if you're going to act like this. Now, the Japanese control of Manchuria is never complete. You stray away from the railway lines and you risk running into Chinese guerrillas. It can be very dangerous very quickly. But as long as you stick to the Japanese-controlled towns, the Japanese railway, uh, it's going to be safe. Okay, But there's a lot of resistance out in the countryside. Okay. Um, the Kantogun increases from 60,000 troops to over 200,000 Japanese troops will be stationed in Manchuria. They're not going to relinquish Manchuria willingly. It will become viewed as the key to Japanese self-sufficiency from the rest of the world, which is conspiring to undermine them. And for the next nine years, 1932 to 1941, there will be unprecedented Japanese investment and migration to Manchuria. Right. Unlike the other emp Western empires, the other Western empires have colonies all over the world. You lose one, you can fall back on another. Japan doesn't have anything to fall back on. This is it. You can't expand into the Pacific Ocean. Even if those islands were available, which they're not, the, Rus the, uh, 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 the British and the Americans have said you can't have as many warships as us, so how are you going to beat them in a war? And China's got the mainland. Okay. Um, how, where do you expand if you're Japan? That protected zone status makes, you know, really limits your options. 
Well, you expand into Korea, you expand south to Taiwan, and most of all, you expand northeast, uh, northwest into Manchuria. That's your fertile agricultural land with tons of natural resources that you need to create an industrial powerhouse. Manchuria is the lifeline to the success of the Japanese empire. So they create a new shared currency with Japan for use in Manchuria. They found 26 new corporations. They invest 6 billion yen, more than they've invested anywhere in the entire Japanese empire previously in Manchuria during these years. Well, strictly speaking, Manchukuo, sorry. They, they develop a huge railroad, uh, railroad network, 50 new cities controlled by the Japanese, developed by the Japanese. The South Manchurian Railway Company will become a massive research, scientific, and policy-making organization. Its reports, its investigative empirical reports and fact-finding missions in support of Japanese imperialism are still used by scholars today, by historians who are trying to reconstruct village life in Manchuria or this or that, you know, or whatever research question you might have that involves 1930s China. Many people will go to the, 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 the reports written by the South Manchurian Railway Company because they're seen as so accurate and have so much data that you can't get anywhere else. Okay, The Manteitsu will be a massive research arm for Japan. And 300,000 more Japanese farmers will migrate to the countryside. One million Japanese will migrate into Manchurian cities. All in all, there's going to be a lot of Japanese living in Manchuria. And when the war ends, this will be a problem. This will be a problem. So, what this also means is that Manchuria will become the most industrially developed region in all of China once Japan exits and withdraws in 1945 and the war is over. So think about that for a minute, the implications. Whoever wins the Chinese Civil War between Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists and the communists will inherit Manchuria. That will be by far the most industrial advanced region of China because of what the Japanese did there in the 1920s and the 1930s. Now let's finish our story. World War II in Asia, known in Asia, known, known to the Chinese as the Second Sino-Japanese War. July 7th, 1937, the Marco Polo Bridge incident starts an all-out war in China. This is exactly what Japanese strategists said you should not do. You cannot have a long-term land war in China. It will become a quagmire with no clear goals, no endpoint, just fighting that goes on and on without clear objectives. Every vic victory against the Chinese, for reasons we'll talk about in later episodes, the Chinese Chiang Kai-shek will actually develop pretty uh, uh, um, high-quality German-trained forces and munitions and tanks and whatnot during the 1920s and 30s. Uh, the Japanese are going to have to fight a lot harder with many more casualties than they expected to win battles against the Chinese. But all-out war does, does begin in 1937. Unfortunately for the Japanese, the nationalist government just keeps retreating and retreating and retreating. It's not like Korea. Where are the Koreans going to retreat to? Nowhere. You take over the peninsula, you've got Korea. China's huge. You just keep retreating inland. All right? Never start a land war in Asia. All right? Isn't that what Vizzini says in The Princess Bride? Never start a land war in Asia. Or Russia. Or anywhere where the, 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 the home government can simply retreat into endless interior lands. And that's what the Chinese do. They retreat from Nanjing, inland, along the Yangtze River to Wuhan, and then finally to Chongqing, way in the interior of Sichuan. And if they ever lost Chongqing, which they didn't, they just would have kept on retreating. It's hopeless. 
it's hopeless to completely conquer them in the modern era. Okay? The frustrations of the war will be embodied in the atrocities that the Japanese soldiers will end up carrying out. Uh, the Nanjing Massacre, things we'll treat in more detail in later episodes. Nanjing Massacre, biological and chemical uh, testing on live human beings in uh, the infamous Unit 731. Comfort women. Okay? Um, if what the war in China is hard enough, it, you know, sort of descends into this quagmire, the war outside of China is also pretty rough as well. All right? Because um, you're dealing with the most military advanced powers on the planet. Great Britain, and the United States. Okay? How did they get involved? How did they get involved? Well, from 1939 to 1941, the U.S. didn't really help out China by fighting Japan, but they retaliated against this war on their ally in other ways. With economic warfare, they imposed embargoes on the Japanese, they froze some of their bank assets, and most importantly, they uh, restricted the, the amount of oil that Japan could buy on the Western market. Well, this is what, you know, led to Pearl Harbor. The Japanese realized we're being strangled by the Americans. If this goes on, we will run out of oil in like two years. And we can't fight a war anymore. We need to take over. We need to dislodge the Americans from the Pacific. Okay? And get access to more markets in Southeast Asia as well so we can get our own rubber, our own oil, our own gutta percha, all kinds of resources that are essential that Japan doesn't have, that even China doesn't really have, and that the United States and Great Britain are trying to keep you from. And that's when they decide, uh, you know, we're going to be at war with the United States sooner or later. Let's ca at least catch them by surprise. And so they have the surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. And then they immediately follow that up by moving into Southeast Asia and dislodging the Dutch from Indonesia, the French from Indochina, the British from Burma, and from Hong Kong, with lightning speed, the Americans from the Philippines. Winston Churchill at this point said, quote, The violence, fury, skill, and might of Japan far exceeded anything we had been led to expect. They will issue, a, you know, engage in a counterattack, but it's going to be bloody and vicious. Okay, because Japan, this is a matter of life and death for them. This is an existential crisis for them, too. They cannot relinquish these colonies, or else they will run out of resources for their military machine and for their empire at large. At the same time, they are propagating a new ideology, a pan-Asian, anti-Western ideology for their expanding empire that now includes former Western colonies. They call it the Greater East Asian Co-Prosperity Sphere. It's propaganda, of course, but all these sort of ideologies anywhere in the world are propaganda. And there's, there is a measure of, of, of attraction in Japanese ideologies, too. It's explicitly anti-imperialist. It's sort of like what the Bolsheviks would provide for the Chinese that we'll talk about in a later episode. It's an ideology that seems to be derived from the West. It involves a country that's modern like the West, like the Japanese have become. But it also repudiates the West in its imperialist aspect. That's attractive. And the Japanese will say, yes, we're creating a co-prosperity sphere for Asians. For Asians. And we're kicking out Western imperialists. And they said at one point, quote, we're lifting the virtuous banner of an Asian league and taking the leadership in a world federation that must come. Right, it's very admirable for many people. Many people in Asia were, were initially, initially, not, not uh, you know, eventually, but initially very attracted to this idea of an Asian 
creating a new world order in Asia. Not the Western imperialists, not white men who look down upon us. Okay? And the Japanese would exploit this to great effect. It would not be as admirable in the execution as it would be in the abstract. Once the Japanese entered Southeast Asia and ruled parts of China, very quickly you realized, wow, this is just as exploitative as anything the Western countries ever did, perhaps even more so because this is wartime. Um, And then the ideology very quickly fell on deaf ears. But initially, this new Japanese ideology about a greater East Asian co-prosperity sphere was very attractive. Here, finally, a formerly colonized people, one of us, non-white, one of us, has risen up and are defeating the Westerners, kicking them out in humiliation, just like they did to the Russians in 1905. This is unprecedented, and it's a source of inspiration for many Asians, initially, (laughs) okay, until the Japanese start acting just like the Western imperialists did, and in some places, far, far worse. Now, the legacy of the Japanese empire in Asia, once they are finally defeated, and the legacy specifically for China, is that Japan's conquests were all carried out in its own backyard, and none of the peoples that they occupied or inflicted violence upon were vulnerable to genocide. There were a lot of them in dense sedentary populations. This means that they don't exterminate any of their enemies. Okay? In other words, they have to regularly confront their former subjects in the world continuously after World War II. Most contentiously, China. Okay? Everyone in Asia, pretty much, gets a pretty bad taste in their mouth from the Japanese occupation of their land at one point or another during the 50 years of Japanese empire. Okay? Um, And Japan, generally speaking, is the most simultaneously admired and reviled people in all of Asia. Okay? There is admiration for what they were able to do. Honorary Westerners, the only non-Westerners to become Westernized that quickly. Coupled with revulsion for what they did to us. And the Japanese have to confront this over and over again. Pay attention to modern-day East Asian politics, Southeast Asia politics with Japan and whatnot. Most people have pretty bitter memories of the Japanese occupation. And it complicates things today. It complicates things today. Politicians have to deal with protests and people dredging up history and talking about what the Japanese did. How can we work with them again? The Japanese presence also ended the possibility of the resumption of formal Western colonialism in Asia after uh, after Japan's defeat. White people were roundly defeated by a supposedly inferior race. The aura of invincibility around white people is gone on a much greater scale than than had occurred in 1905 when the Russians were finally defeated. The co-prosperity sphere set a precedent, however hypocritical, for an alternative worldview that was independent of Western influence or even a Western presence. Three, the Japanese are never allowed, or never allowed, never encouraged, never take the initiative. (laughs) There's many different verbs we could use here. They never, one way or the other, they never come to terms in any way, shape, or form with their imperial past. Okay? Say what you want about Germany and maybe an incomplete reckoning with what the Nazis did. Uh, Nevertheless, most people in Germany went through an educational program, uh, state-led reminders of what happened that they're aware of what happened, and they are forced to confront it. Maybe not always with the intended results, but it's much more prominent in the public sphere in Germany and the educational system. Not in Japan. 
Okay, the violence and the exploitation are never confronted. The Japanese go back to their islands. They aren't contiguously connected by land with any of the places that they did these things in. So it's easy to sort of be separated from them, to not have to confront the, these people like this, the comfort women, the Nanjing massacre, the biological warfare, the forced labor. Never are they forced to confront it. It's never acknowledged. Okay? This will be a sore spot for many people in Asia. The Japanese never atoned for what they did. They never apologized. There's no apologies, no goodbyes, no reflections. And a lot of this is not just sort of Japan's geographical status, but also the fact that it gets immediately foisted into the U.S.-led umbrella during the Cold War. The U.S. will occupy Japan, and they will very soon dis uh, discover that with China turning to be uh, communist and Russia, the Soviet Union being hostile, uh, we need a place like Japan to help us sort of create this crescent ring around communism in Asia. Japan is going to be our base, our military bases on Japan. They'll continue after 1972 on Okinawa to this very day. We need a pliable, uh, advanced, industrialized country on the fringe of Asia that will be our base, and we will use Japanese technical know-how, technological abilities and whatnot that they fostered during the 50 years of empire. We will defang them, we will take away their military uh, and replace it with our military. But we want Japanese know-how, we want their land, and we want the access that it affords us to Asia. And so the United States will play an integral role in making sure that Japan does not have to face up and deal with what it did during the empire for 50 years. And this, again, complicates its relationships with other Asians. Okay, you know, go on to Google and type in Japanese apologies and whatnot. Uh, it's a very acrimonious topic. To deal with. And other countries love, especially Korea and, and China, love to trot out Japanese atrocities whenever it's convenient for current day political purposes. Okay. The last thing, Japan ultimately laid down the modern industrial and educational infrastructure of nearly all of present day Asia. Okay. Scratch the surface of pretty much any Asian nation in Southeast Asia and East Asia, and you'll find that most of the modern uh, government buildings, railroads, airports, universities, oftentimes they can trace their genealogy back to a Japanese blueprint, sometimes to Japanese buildings. Okay, Mo the modernization of Asia was germinated in large part by the Japanese Empire. Okay, further complicating its relationships with other people throughout of Asia. Okay. And then again, of course, specifically in China, they will make northeastern China the most valuable strategic asset to possess after their 1945 surrender. Okay, and the big takeaway point here, from China's perspective, more than any other empire, Japan's survival and its competition with the Western empires, Western imperialism, depended upon China's complete subjugation to it. Okay, thus there was no chance whatsoever of the Chinese state being unified and peacefully developing to achieve parity with the West until Japan was knocked out of the picture. Okay, anyone who was in power in China prior to the defeat of Japan in 1945 was destined to be emasculated by Japan in political terms. Western imperialism did that to the Qing. It fatally undermined the political legitimacy and capital of the Qing dynasty until people said, to hell with the Qing dynasty, they can't protect China, they need to go. 
The West did it to the Qing, but Japan did it to everyone thereafter. President Yuan Shikai in 1915, Han warlords like Zhang Zuolin in 1928, and then finally Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist government. Each one will be fatally compromised in their nation-building efforts by the Japanese desire to make sure that China never became strong and unified under a powerful anti-imperialist government. Okay, China, as a result, did not have access to its own resources to develop its own country. On the contrary, Japan had China's resources and much of Asia's to develop its own wealth and power at the expense of most of Asia. Okay, and as we'll see later, Mao Zedong's Communist Party will end up benefiting from having to retreat to the countryside while the Japanese pounded away at Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist army and destroyed the ability of Chiang Kai-shek to unify China. It's one of the great ironies of history. The Japanese loathed the communists, and yet it was their invasion of China that probably allowed the communists to come to power and beat Chiang Kai-shek. More on that in future episodes. Okay, now, next time, we will take one last farewell look at the daily social order, the lives of ordinary Chinese in China prior to the 1911 revolution. Okay? And the topic will be sex and the law in late imperial China in episode 30 of Beyond Huaxia. And then finally, I promise you, we will get to the 1911 revolution and then it's all 20th century from there on. (laughs) 